Welcome to the podcast of Sozo Church. For more information about Sozo, please visit sozosmtx.com. Thank you. Y'all are kind. Hey, how about worship this morning? Wasn't that fantastic? What an incredible team. You may have noticed that we were missing our uh, worship pastor, Nathan. Um, That's because he is on paternity leave because they had little Lynn and Brooks this week. And so Steve and Lisa, grandparents, congratulations. Um, We keep growing this church by popping out babies. I like it. Um, So be fruitful, multiply, go for it. Uh, So yeah, we've been in this series, Holy Rebels, last week. I kind of came out swinging. Did you feel that? Um, If you could have seen your faces, it was pretty interesting. Um, You can catch it online if you want. Not your faces, but the message, if you want to get caught up. But I want to give you a little background on um, why we're going here now. So everybody, I think we've agreed that the last three and a half years or so have been pretty disorienting, right? Like just culturally everything that has been going on from politics to sexuality to wars, just there's a lot going on. And so in the middle of all of that, I personally have been in a process of like walking with God, like what does it look like to engage from your perspective, to join you in what you're doing? What does it uh, look like to lead people uh, through this? Because I believe that the church should be equipped in what it looks like to uh, approach culture from a kingdom paradigm. And so I've just been kind of in my own process of working through uh, so much of this stuff and then also saying, God, when is it time? And just waiting on his timing to talk about this. And, and, and so the first uh, sermon in this series, we talked about what does it look like to be holy rebels? Like, what does it look like to not be people that just go with the flow of culture? But what does it look like, that, that phrase, holy rebels, holy means to be set apart. Rebels means I'm not gonna give in to what culture is telling me I need to do and how I need to engage, but instead I'm gonna le- live out God's way of living. So what does it look like? And so we talked about living with uncompromising holiness. That means this, that I don't just... Uh, go about life saying, you know, that, that's okay. I can, I can get away with that. I can, but, but the, instead, like Daniel or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that I live a life absolutely set apart. That I realize that I belong to Jesus and that I'm his, and so I'm going to do life his way. Second, we talked about uh, living with unshakable love. You see, in the middle of culture wars, what is often lost is love. And so when we engage as the world engages, we end up fighting fights that we're not called to fight and fighting them as the world fights. That's why Jesus says, if a soldier tells you to carry uh, his stuff uh, one mile, go ahead and take it two. Or if you're slapped, instead of eye for an eye, which is what you've been taught, you turn the other cheek. There's a way of living inside the, the kingdom that turns the schemes and the powers of the world upside down on their head. Amen? What I'm not talking about in that is weakness. I think sometimes we confuse weakness and meekness. Meekness isn't about being weak or passive, but it's about using the strength that God gives you to engage in the way that God calls you to engage. 
You with me? All right. Good to hear it. Two of you. Wonderful. Uh, The third thing we talked about in that first series was unwavering truth. You know, one of the things that our culture has done is said, you know, truth is relative. You've got my truth, your truth. I've got my truth. The reality is, is that truth is a person and that person is Jesus. And when we begin to realize that who Jesus is, he is the divine word, the revelation of the very purpose of God in flesh. When we begin to see him rightly, it puts everything in order. And so I may have a perspective on the truth and you may have a perspective on the truth, but I don't own the truth. I don't have my own truth. Instead, truth is found in a person of Jesus. And here's the interesting thing. One of the words used for Jesus in the New Testament is the word word. Say word. Word. The word word is the Greek word logos. Say logos. All right, now you're speaking Greek. The word logos means the divine purpose. And so what Jesus has done is revealed the divine purpose of life for us. That's who he is and that's all that he embodies. And so when we get outside of that purpose, now here's the great thing about that purpose. There is a flow to the purpose of God for us as a people, but there is also a particular part, a particular lane, stream that you flow in, that you were designed by him to live in. And we begin to discover that what we find is life. Last week, we talked about uh, Jesus, politics, and the kingdom. And essentially, what I uh, hope you grabbed from that was this, that we're not called to be a political people. Doesn't mean we don't engage in politics, but what we so often do is we let our Christianity bow to the God of politics. And when we do that, we step outside of a kingdom way of living. This morning, here's what I'd like to lay before you is is a sermon that I'm calling God and Government. What does it look like to engage government from a godly perspective, from a kingdom perspective? Now, for many of us, that's probably not going to look like what you think it looked like. looks like. What I'm not talking about is how do we make the whole world like us. That's actually not the goal of government. Oh, man. Hang in there with me for a second. Lauren, can I have my phone? I just realized I threw away my new notes <laughs> and got my old notes. So I could preach you last week's sermon again. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I hardly ever use notes. They give me a hard time for not using notes. And then the moment that I need them, they're gone. He's got it, but there's this quote that I really want to read to you. I'm not nervous, honestly. I, I uh, do, though, want uh, to cover what we're talking about, and I think God's in on it. We had fun preparing. So that's serious, by the way. When I prepare, 
Like, I think sometimes, like, many of you are gonna be called to, to give talks, to lead groups, all of those things. As I prepare, I don't prepare like I'm taking a test. My goal is to pre- actually prepare with the same Holy Spirit that I hope I deliver it with. And so notes, no notes, I'm fine. Um, but I do, uh, yeah, this morning I actually want notes. Usually I'm just like, hey, let's, let's run with it. So go with me to John 8. Uh, 36, sorry, 1836. So this is Jesus just before Pilate. He's on his way to be crucified. And Pilate, you know, we talked about last week how it was the political spirit and the religious spirit combined that crucified Jesus. Now, Jesus gave up his life, but the, the systems that were coming against Jesus were those two. And so basically, the religious leaders hand Jesus over to the political leaders. And Pilate, who's a political leader um, on behalf of the Roman government, he is really confused on why this guy Jesus is claiming to be king and yet doesn't seem to have an army that's coming with him. And so they're having a conversation about it. And Pilate, we'll go back to verse 33. says, Pilate went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus responds, is that your own idea? Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied. Your own people and chief of priests handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? Here's what I want you to get, verse 36. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. You understand that? The kingdom of God is not of this world. Doesn't mean that it's not in this world. In fact, the message that Jesus most often preaches that the kingdom of God is at hand, it's near, it's in our very midst. And yet what Jesus is saying is that the kingdom of God is not advanced by armies. It's not advanced by political agendas. Instead, the kingdom of God comes from another realm and it comes through a different type of people. And so the question is, well, how does the kingdom come? And how does it come through government? Can it even come through government? See, Jesus, when the disciples were asking him, how do we pray? He responds, we see it in Matthew chapter six, verses nine and 10. He said, you pray this way, our father who art in heaven. Now that's really good news because what Jesus was saying is our father. That means that we get in on the same type of relationship he has with the father. That means this also, that he's our father. He's not just my father, but he's our father. And that makes us family. Our father who art in heaven. Holy is your name means that even your very name is set apart. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, it's actually God's desire. So Jesus is saying my kingdom's from another realm. But what he's also saying in Matthew chapter six is that my kingdom does come and it has an impact on the realm of earth. And so it's important that we, as a people of God, understand, okay, what does it look like when the kingdom of God comes? And more interestingly, how does it come? 
And what I'd like to suggest to you this morning is that there is a passive way for the people of God to expect that somehow the kingdom would come through government instead of through us living as a bright light in the world. And too often we've thought, oh, what I'll do to advance the kingdom of God is vote a certain way, or I hope that my people get in power. And what we miss is that when we try to engage in that way, we're actually living from a different realm, a lesser realm. We're not engaging in the way that God would call us to engage. So I wanna read this to you. It's from a book called The Jesus I Never Knew by Philip Yancey. And he's talking about an experience that he had in, in Russia. So I'm just gonna read this to you. It says, the editors of Pravda, which is, was the USSR's communist newspaper, it's what they used to uh, really get their propaganda across. So he's talking with the editors of the, the newspaper. He says, they remarked wistfully that Christianity and communism have many of the same ideas, equality, sharing, justice, and racial harmony, yet they had to admit that the Marxist pursuit of that vision had produced the worst nightmares uh, the world had ever seen. Why? We don't know how to motivate people to show compassion, said the editor-in-chief. 74 years of communism had proven beyond all doubt that goodness could not be legislated from the Kremlin and enforced at the point of a gun. In a heavy irony, attempts to compel morality tend to produce defiant subjects and tyrannical, tyrannical rulers who lose their moral code. We've seen it time and time again. I came away from Russia with a strong sense that we, we Christians would do well to relearn the basic lessons of the temptation. He's talking about Jesus's temptation uh, in the desert right after his baptism. Goodness cannot be imposed externally from the top down. It must grow internally from the bottom up. Now here's the, the picture of the temptation. Let me just take you back there. Matthew chapter four. Jesus has been fasting and he's in the wilderness and the devil comes to him and says, hey, I'm gonna give you power over the whole world if you just bow to me. And basically the, the thought was this. The enemy was inviting Jesus to bypass the cross to get to the throne. And what Philip Yancey is saying here is this. The temptation is to gain influence to see the kingdom advance from power instead of sacrifice. From domination instead of service. And you see, the schemes of this world would say if you engage in your political life in a certain way and you do these certain things, then you can get the kingdom without a cost. Let's keep reading. The temptation in the desert reveals a profound difference between God's power and Satan's power. Satan has the power to coerce, to dazzle, to force obedience, to destroy human, to destroy 
to destroy. Sorry. My text is like this small right now. Humans have learned much from that power, and governments draw deeply from its reservoir. With a bullwhip or a billy club or an AK-47, human beings can force other human beings to do just about anything they want. Satan's power is external and coercive. God's power, in contrast, is internal and non-coercive. The point of me reading this to you is not simply to say that Marxism is a bad idea, though it is. Now, it's been tried over and over again, and everybody's like, hey, I've got the new, the, the new way to do it, and maybe it'll work this time. But that's not the point that I'm trying to make. The point is, is that control is toxic. And it doesn't matter if you're doing it from a Marxist perspective or a Christendom perspective. Are you with me? So when we say, hey, I, I, I wanna elect a godly president, now here's what the world says. This may not be what you mean, but what the world hears is, I'm looking for a pastor and president who's going to make everybody Christian. And what communism has proven, what dictatorships throughout history have proven, this is that, that morality, that holiness, that a, a way of living compassionate, devoted lives will never be legislated from government. It can never be enforced by the government. Are you with me? And so often people think, well, if I vote a certain way, then we could become a Christian nation. Now, let, let me talk to you about the idea of a Christian nation and why I actually think that we are, but it doesn't mean what you think it means. You see, the founders, and this is an argument that has made a resurgence in, in recent times, is this, that some of the founders and the earliest people into America made a covenant with God on behalf of our nation. And I think that's probably true. But here's what's different from Christianity, from the way of Jesus and any other way. The way of Jesus to be a Christian nation is not that we have a Christian version of Sharia law in our nation. Are you with me? It's not about how do we make people do things the church's way. That's not the responsibility of the government. Instead, to be a Christian nation means that this, that everybody gets the freedom to choose what they believe. You see, if you go back to the very beginning in Genesis chapter one, two, and three, what we see is this, is that God created a garden and he put mankind in it. And in that garden, he put two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Does God have a, a value for righteousness, for morality and holiness? Yes. You with me? However, God has what seems to be an equal value for the freedom of choice and the freedom of belief. He wouldn't have put two trees in there if he wanted conformity by force. He would have just said, just eat from the tree of life, it'll sustain you all you need. But instead, what God did is say, I'm going to give you the freedom to choose. And so if we're to be 
a Christian nation, what that doesn't mean is that we're a nation full of Christians. What that means is that our government has decided that we wanna give people the opportunity to choose whatever they want to choose in the way that they believe. Freedom of religion. Now, here's what's interesting. If you were to look at history, say, okay, when does the church thrive? It's not when they're in control. And the reality is what we find is that whenever the church is in control, and what I mean is mandating religious conformity, a conformity of belief, whenever the church is in control, it's really bad for humanity. Are you with me? Instead, the church thrives, you said it a second ago, the most in persecution. Here's what that means to us. We, as the people of God, are resistant to external coercion. It also means this, that whenever we have power and influence, if we use it to ramrod our agenda, it will only do damage. Here's what I'm not advocating for. I'm not advocating for persecution. <laughs> I heard this like subtle sigh of amen under your breath. But what I'm also not advocating for is that in any way we would say we need to, to have our nation be a nation full of Christians and that we would force a religious or spiritual agenda on our citizens. Are you with me? And here's what we're honestly seeing in the middle of our culture. We have a history of doing that at some level. And now the pathways that we created are being used against us to ramrod other agendas in our nation. And so the church has been caught in some sort of power struggle on a political plane. And as we're losing power, we're now slinging mud. Instead of realizing that maybe power was never the goal. Let me, let me, can we cook a few sacred cows this morning? Y'all up for a barbecue? Can we just talk for a second about prayer in public school? Now we know this, that as long as there are tests, there will be prayer in school. <laughs> but if we attempt to use the public sphere from a place of power and control to ramrod our agenda, to use it as a tool of conversion, what we'll find is that at least it's ineffective. And at most, it's severely damaging. Now, I think we actually arrived at school prayer 
in this way. Most of the schools in our nation, like if you go way back, met in the local church house. And so prayer was common because they were just Christian communities. But as we've globalized and secularized, people from different faiths and no faith at all, which is a faith somehow, have begun to find their way into our communities. And as that's happened, they've slowly gained a voice and said, hey, we actually don't believe what you believe and we're not interested in having that here. And then it became this real fight instead of actually honoring what other people believe. You see, what what you'll find is that Jesus never got caught in religious wars. You'll never find Jesus comparing religions. What you'll find is Jesus inviting people into the way of the kingdom, which has a high value on choice and freedom. And so here's what I would propose to you. Man, I, I wanna see people, like I wanna see our whole nation give their lives to Jesus but they'll never do it by force. So when I met with the administrators for our kids' new school last year, I, I asked them, hey, what, what, do you, what are you doing in the way of gender and sexuality? Like, how do you handle that? I have had that same conversation with the superintendent of the San Marcos ISD. Why? Because I don't want an agenda ramrodded on my kids. Are you with me? In fact, and we also talked about religion. And my kids, I've, I've had my kids in private school right now. They're in a, a public charter school. And, and the truth is, even in Christian school, I'm not so sure that I want them teaching my kids religion. Because, man, I grew up in Christian school. I'm so grateful for it. I've got memory verses for years. I could just stand up here and quote scripture. But most places wouldn't teach what I would want my kids to receive in the way of spirituality. Are you with me? And so uh, I was thrilled when they said, hey, we see those two topics Religion and sexuality as the parent's responsibility, as a family responsibility. And so if a kid starts saying, hey, I, I was born this, but I think I'm that, or I'm attracted to this or whatever, we're just going to refer them back to the parents. You see, I, 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 don't, even, I don't want them venturing into that part of my kids' lives. Whether they agree with what I agree with or they disagree with what I believe in that area, it's not that... I need them to affirm what I believe. I want them to stay all the way out of it. Because if we're having that conversation, it creates a pathway for the next teacher to come along and begin to to say, hey, you should actually believe this, and maybe you're this, and maybe this, this, this. And they get all sorts of confused. We'll talk about this in three or four weeks as a whole sermon or two. But they'll get all sorts of confused by being asked questions that they just don't need to be asked as a 10-year-old. Are you with me? So... Here's what I'm saying to you. This is what I'm saying about prayer in school. Again, I, I, like, I love America. I don't have an ax to grind with America. And I love Jesus. And I want everybody to know Jesus. But it's not the right format 
to try to get people to know Jesus. Are you with me? Like we could do it in after school clubs and all that kind of stuff, but our goal is not to get prayer back in school. Our goal is to introduce people to Jesus. And when we try to get prayer back in school, it's just some sort of political power move. Are you with me? It's trying to bring the kingdom in an illegitimate way and it'll never come that way. Are you with me? So we could take so many different topics, but here's what I'd like to say to you. We'll take some more in the weeks to come, but what I'd like to say to you is this. There is a way of doing government that honors God, but it's not trying to use control to convert. Are you with me? That's not the government's responsibility. It's not, hey, let's elect this president or this governor or this city council and mayor, and they're going to take and implement our spiritual beliefs and impose them on the minority. That's not okay. That's not the way of God. Why? Because the gospel of the kingdom is so good that when people clearly see it and they're invited into it, they'll say, yes, they don't need to be forced into it. They just need a clear picture of what it is. And the truth is, when we try to mandate the initiatives of the kingdom onto people, it reveals that we don't know how good Jesus is and how powerful his message is. It's so good and so compelling that when people hear it, when they see it, when they grasp it, it's transformative. We don't need to do it by force. It's like you don't need to sell firewood by some elaborate scheme when it's really cold outside. Like, let me come up with a marketing scheme. You don't even need to do buy one, get one free. In fact, when the power goes out like it did a couple years ago, it's like you could sell that stuff for $100 a bundle and people would be buying it. The truth is our world is in the same place. They are so in need of the authentic gospel. And when we try to take it by force and shove it down people's throats, we totally devalue what it is that we carry. And so what does it look like for the kingdom of God to come to government? Here's what I actually believe in pre-service prayer. It just hit me. Like, I think what God actually wants to do is he wants to raise up some kingdom politicians in our midst. But it's not for the sake of pushing our agenda in the way of religion is actually about promoting freedom for people. And so let me give you, I wrote these as four values. I added a fifth a few minutes ago. There's more, but here's what I want you to, to get. We talked about this first one, freedom of choice and belief. God honors your freedom. Like he wants you to believe. And here's what our, Founding fathers decided in America. Now, this isn't like a let's go America sermon. But what our founding fathers realized is that humanity was actually given unalienable rights, like rights that couldn't be took, taken away. And so their goal in, in 
enumerating those rights was not to say we're giving you rights, but it's to recognize the rights that God had already given us. Now, it's taken a long time for some of those to be fleshed out so that they're available to all of America. But what they found is it wasn't their ability to give rights, but instead to recognize them and do their best to protect those rights. So they you know, came up with life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Here's what I'd like to say is that even God honors your ability to believe or not to believe. God honors that. So a godly government would honor that, would not force its way, but instead say, you've got a choice to make. You with me? So you can believe and choose. Now there are some boundaries to your belief and your choice. And that comes in to justice, mercy, and compassion. You see, what a godly government does is has a justice system that treats everybody fairly. And so inside of my ability to choose, when my ability to choose begins to make its way into violating your freedom and personal autonomy, that's a violation. That should be illegal. That's what justice does, is it says, hey, you don't get to push your freedom of choice on to me. You with me? Like, whenever, if, if I get mad, I can do whatever I want inside of my anger as long as I'm not destroying property or people. Right? Because that's a, a violation. So what a godly government does is protects that. And so this is where we come to the issue of abortion. Now, let me say this. I've walked with people who've had an abortion and I am incredibly compassionate for that. You're not damned because you had an abortion, okay? And there are ladies in our church family who have gone down that road and would love to walk with you. So this isn't beat people up who've had an abortion. The, the issue, though, of choice and justice would say this about abortion, would say there's a, a life form living inside of you and so it should be the responsibility of the government. This isn't pushing a conservative Christian evangelical perspective. It's saying, hey, we know even scientifically that life starts at the moment of conception. Now, that's complicated for a bunch of different reasons. I know that it's not simple, okay? But life starts at the moment of conception. And so a government's responsibility would be to protect that life because that life is, a, is actually a citizen. Now, I, I, again, I get the complicated nature of that topic, and this isn't a sermon on that topic, but what I wanna say is there's a responsibility to protect life. And people say, well, it's not viable. Well, my 10-year-old isn't viable either outside of my care, right? Not gonna make it. And so there's, there, there's a value in protecting that life, and that bleeds over into mercy, and a godly government doesn't just stand for the majority, but actually looks out for the marginalized. That has a level of compassion. Now, we know this, that systems are not the best at showing compassion. People are. Right? So 
It's not just a system to show compassion or a system to protect the marginalized. But it's actually hearts of the people. But we learned this a few minutes ago. I think you're with me. That you can't legislate or force compassion or tender hearts. But a, a good government would say, hey, we're, we're going to protect the marginalized. You know, that's why people protest and they riot. I'm not endorsing rioting, but the reason is, is that they feel unprotected and unheard. And so to say, hey, it doesn't make sense that they're rioting, or that they're protesting. Well, it's because they don't have a voice and it's the only way to have a voice if you're not feeling heard, okay? So I'm trying to be a really good equal opportunity offender this morning. But a, a godly government would have mercy built into it. Like, does anybody want special education ripped out of schools? No. That's a part of mercy. Are there people that just don't have the ability or even the family structure to take care of themselves? It's mercy that we would help those people. We don't need to beat up on everybody in welfare. Are there some people that take advantage of the system? Absolutely. And has it done some damage? Yes, I'm not saying it's perfect, but we need the ability to take care of people. And church, it doesn't mean that we outsource compassion to the government. But instead, we live as a compassionate people because we have real people in our lives that are struggling and they need help. And so justice, mercy, and compassion are key. Equality. This goes back to the, uh, to really the first point, the freedom to choose and the freedom to believe, that what our founding fathers decided is that all men, even though some of the laws at the time didn't show it, all men, are, men and women are created equal. And it goes back to this, the idea that man and woman were created in the image of God. And so you and your neighbor, look at your neighbor, it's like, you look like God. If you want to know what God looks like, it look in the face of somebody else. It's like there's a representation of who he is in everybody. And so it means that everybody is equal. It doesn't mean that everybody's the same, but it does mean that people are equal. Are you with me? In their value, in their humanity, that's something worth respecting and then that goes back to justice. And so we treat people fairly and the people that are marginalized and disenfranchised that we care for them with mercy because they have value because they represent a, an aspect, a facet of who God is that nobody else does. And then a government would have the responsibility of protection and promoting prosperity in its citizens. Like to, to the best of their ability to keep invaders, foreign and domestic, from doing damage to people, to protect justice and to bring justice, and then to give them an opportunity to make a way in life and to help them forward. It's why we have the education system. It's designed or should be designed to promote prosperity. And then finally, here's what godly government looks like. It looks like servant leadership. What we need, this should get a really good amen, what we need in our day 
is leaders who aren't self-serving, but are servant leaders. And to say, you know what? I'm sacrificing to lay down my life for the people that I'm called to lead. And so often, what we have is people that find positions of power in order to protect their own agenda. So I believe this, that God actually wants to raise some people up that aren't looking to force their way, but that would be servant leaders and that would carry the kingdom in that way. This morning, my desire for you and I is this. As I've been preparing and getting ready for this, not just for the last few weeks, but for the, really the last few years, I found myself at several points of repentance. It's like, man, I just haven't thought the right way. I've been missing it in this. And my heart is this, that you and I are called to be ambassadors of the kingdom and that we would not, that we would not hope that some political leader, some would-be governmental messiah would do what we we're called to do in advancing the kingdom and in making disciples. And so my, my invitation to you is to say, you know what, maybe I have looked for control instead of being a compelling light. Instead of living as a light, I've been just trying to control whether it's in my voting, pushing an agenda on people, or maybe it's just in my life. Like, I'm just gonna surrender control. Because we all know this. On a really good day, we can control ourselves. We've got no business trying to control everybody else. And so, that we would be people of compassion and that we would realize that government has a role but it's not the central role in our lives. And this, that we would not depend on governmental systems and on political agendas to determine if we're going to be a bright light. That we would live it regardless of what system we're in. Our hope is not in the political world. Our hope is in King Jesus and his kingdom. Are you with me? I wanna pray for us, but first, this is kind of a hard turn, but we've just been seeing God working miraculously in people's lives. I really feel like God wants to heal this morning. Casey was sharing about it. We shared last week about somebody with stage four cancer being healed. I just feel like God wants to continually heal. And so I feel like there's somebody here that you've got like significant problems with your left eye. With left eye in particular, I feel like God wants to heal you this morning. Um, our team, as we were praying, somebody with a, a right elbow tendon, like throwing arm problem, somebody else that has issues, maybe even a tumor, but issues in your front left brain lobe, and then an another person with a hernia. So I'm gonna invite our ministry team forward. And if that's you, or you just have, you don't have to wait for it to be called out. If you just need healing in your body, I feel like God wants to heal this morning. I, I know that he does. He's already decided it. So what we're doing is just joining in agreement with what he's already decided to do. Do you stand with me? Jesus, we love you.
And Lord, we thank you that you're moving here. Lord, we ask that you would have your way in our midst. Lord, that we would be people that follow you in your way. Maybe here this morning and you've never given your life to Jesus saying, you know what, Jesus, I'm all in with you. I trust you this morning would be a great time to do that. You can come forward and these folks would love to pray with you. Lord, we just thank you that you're at work. Lord, we, we bless our, our nation, our leaders, God. We ask, Lord, that you would give them godly wisdom. And Lord, our, our prayer is this, that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done. In Jesus' name, amen.